and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hey, hey, everyone. I hope you're having a fabulous week. It has been an insane seven days here since we were last on Challenges That Change Us. From keynotes to workshop presentations, volunteering as a crisis supporter for Lifeline, and of course, wait for it, the launch of our resilience course, Surviving to Thriving. This is the course that you all heard about a few months ago that we ran the pilot program for. Some people did it online. They came on every Wednesday night and some did it from their home. And we had such great feedback from people that were doing it at home. We've decided to make it fully available to you 24-7 from your homes. And we're launching it this week. All the information will be in the show notes. I'll pop it in our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us. So if you're new to our community, make sure you jump on over there. That's where all our information is and that's where we all communicate with each other. On that note, I absolutely love the comments on the post in the group about the advice for navigating tough times. My favorite was, this too shall pass. I have held on to that all week. It's like the ocean, right? Life ebbs and flows. Adversity ebbs and flows. It never remains static. Now on to today's pod. I am dying to introduce you all to Dr. Kelly Kessler. She is a licensed physical therapist, transformation coach, host of the podcast Rewiring Health, business owner, and mum of two boys. Kelly helps high-achieving perfectionist women stop compromising their health during the pursuit of achievements through nervous system regulation and subconscious reprogramming. Kelly shares with us today her journey of recovering from persistent negative thoughts, perfectionistic beliefs, an eating disorder, chronic back pain, and panic attacks. So as always, if this is not the right episode for you today, please give yourself permission to skip it and we will see you next Monday with bells on. Otherwise, let me introduce you to this incredible woman, Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on today. Hello. Thank you for having me. Kel, I love to start every episode with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal in particular? I mean, this animal, it describes me, but also it keeps showing up in my life at times when I need it. So there's actually two that are very similar, interesting enough, but a great blue heron and a praying mantis. And I find that they keep popping up anytime I'm having a hard time. Like they, I always see them. Their representation of like resilience, strength, patience, intuition, and calmness. And I feel like that's very much me. Like I love to feel like there's a calmness in my life, a harmony. I'm resilient when I need to be. There's a strength in me. And I always need the reminders for patience. So I think that's why they show up in my life a lot, to be more patient because I'm like, I need it now. I need it yesterday. So (laughs) I find that I have some of their traits, but I think they show up in my life a lot to remind me of the other traits that I need to have a little bit more of. 
When you said praying mantis, I had to really think about what are the characteristics of a praying mantis because I've never <laughs> gone into their personality traits or, you know, like I only mm-hmm. think of them as how they move as opposed to the traits that sit within them. Yeah, there's very much like that stillness and just being in the moment, like they're just, they're there and just like not much going on, just enjoying the presence and, and being still. And I think that's why they show up my life because that's always been a struggle for me. So I'm probably more like the great blue heron, but I think the praying mantis comes in to remind me just to be still for a moment and allow my thoughts to not be constantly consuming me. Maybe I can find a couple of praying mantises in my life. Maybe I need a few more. (laughs) (laughs) Slow, slow down a little. (laughs) I hear you. I think that's why they keep showing up in my life. (laughs) And Kelly, we, um, for the audience, they won't know this. I'm up at 3.30 a.m. so that we can do this podcast today. Um, We've been trying to line it up for a little while. So I'm really stoked to have you on. And thank you so much for for taking the time. And, you you know, for the story that we're going to be sharing. It's nice time over there for you. Very different. Whereabouts are you actually from? So I'm in New Jersey, the United States. So I'm right about an hour outside of New York City. Yeah. yeah. So it's 2.30 in the afternoon here. Not nearly as a <laughs> difficult time as you are dealing with right now. <laughs> the best place to start might be even if we just go back to the beginning, like right back to, you know, in your late teenage years, early adulthood and where, where everything sort of begun for you and what was happening in your world at that time. Yeah, sure. So when I was a, a teenager, you know, I was going off to college and very much like I've always been that high achiever. Like I need to get good grades. I'm that honor student. Like I had this identity of like, I do the best at everything I possibly can. So when I went off to college, one of my goals was to be a starter on the field hockey team out there at college. And so I worked my butt off, trained and eventually worked my way, got a starting position in my first year. And like everything seemed like from the outside, very good. But I felt very much like alone in the whole process. I, I was dealing with like a lot of turmoil in my my own life. And I think I look back now, I understand what was happening, but I was coping with exercise. So I started just exercising more. I, I removed myself from like team events. I would just be at like the practices and the games, but like in social events, I removed myself and I would just go out run at those times, spent a lot of time at the gym and it just gradually started accumulating. And I just felt very much like an outsider. So I felt like, all right, I need to change my circumstances. So then I transferred to another college. Well, it only compounded things because now that team had already been formed. I was very much the outsider, felt very alone, very ostracized. And I went back to my coping mechanism, which was exercise. So I would just run campus, remove myself from social things and just exercise. In the morning, I would eat breakfast, exercise, lunch, exercise, dinner, exercise. While everyone was coming back from the bars at night, I was out running campus. And this just continued. And it gradually just kind of spiraled out of control where I couldn't, I I was eating excessively at the same time. So I was eating like bags of chocolate chips and then I would go exercise to make up for the calories. I knew exactly what calories were going in, what were going out. And it just got so out of control and was so driven by that perfectionist mindset I had of like, I have to look a certain way. I have to be the best. I have to just always keep pushing the limit. I was never satisfied. And it got to the point where I couldn't keep the calories out by just exercise alone. So I started vomiting and that's, it just, that's when I realized, Oh, I do have something going on here. I thought I was just an athlete. And so for years, that's what I was doing. And really nobody knew I was very secretive about everything that was going on, but I just had this drive for nothing is ever good enough. 
I would be grinding. I'd be grinding in school, grinding in athletics, grinding in everything. And I just, I never felt satisfied. Nothing was ever good enough. And that was the driving force that continued on for years through the eating disorder and then became a theme in my life in many other aspects. What I was thinking as you were saying that is, did anyone know? And and you just mentioned that no one knew. And that's mind blowing when I hear that. I think, how did people not notice when you said you were running at breakfast and running at lunch and running at dinner and running throughout the night? You said, did people around you not see that? Did they not ask questions? Did they think that was normal? Ironically, I actually got a lot of praise for it, for being so disciplined, so determined. People are like, oh my gosh, I wish I could be like you. I can't even get myself up to go for a run. And so there was like a lot of praise because they viewed me as an athlete. So they mm. thought this is just training. The 3 a.m. runs, the, the midnight runs, nobody really knew about that because I would just kind of sneak out. I had my own room, which just kind of sneak out and do it. So that was very much nobody knew about that. But um, during the day, again, I think people just chalked it up to me being an athlete. And that was my identity. I'm an athlete. This is what I do. I was you know, re- training for half marathons. And I think people just accumulated to that. So they were, there's actually a lot of praise, but they didn't know the driving force behind mm. that. It was more just that negative mindset I had about myself that I'm not enough, but they, on the outside, everything looked like I had it together. I had good grades. I was athletic. If you looked at me, I looked very athletic. It didn't look like something was wrong, but I knew in my heart what the driving force was. And it wasn't for you know, anything good. It was just more for my own defeat, really. Mm. And how much of your time would you say was spent? How much of your energy and thinking was spent on a daily basis around what you're eating, when you're running, the vomiting? Yeah, I would say probably 90% of it. The majority of my time, I was thinking about if I wasn't running, I was thinking about what I need to do. I was thinking about how many calories I was taking in. I knew every single amount of calories. Like I didn't even have to look at it. I had everything memorized. I knew how much was in the tofu I was eating at the time, the rice crackers I was eating at the time. Like I knew all that. I knew how many calories I was burning at the gym. I mean, the numbers were consuming to me and you know, where I'd be checking myself in the mirror. It was just, there was constant constant energy going towards it. I really, I realize now how much energy I was devoting to it at the time I didn't because I'm like, this is just what I do. This is comfortable for me. Like, ironically, it was just so comforting. I'm like, this is, I feel like I have control and that's what it was about. You know, I look back in those times, I'm like, my gosh, I wasted so much time and energy on that. But at the time, like that was all I knew and that's what I wanted. I didn't want anybody to tell me to stop because it was my comfort zone. It was my coping mechanism. So how did things start to shift or change? Did you start to become aware or did someone say something or did a situation happen? Yeah. So I've had that question asked. And I think when I've, as I processed it, I really remember this one moment that I have written in my journal. And I remember very clearly I had eaten two bags of chocolate chips. I had thrown up multiple times. I had gone for a run. I literally was sitting on my floor in my college dorm and I was shaking. Like my eyes were bloodshot. I was shaking. My heart was pounding out of my chest. I felt sick. And I, I just was fearful. Like I was fearful. Like I'm, I was 22, I think at the time then. And I'm like, I'm 22. And like, I can't even catch my breath right now, you know? And, and my heart is pounding. I feel like I had no control over my body and it was just pure fear. Like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm young, you know, if this continues, like, I'm really going to hurt myself, you know, if I keep doing this and it felt 
like there was just that overall fear. I didn't know how I was going to get out of it, but I'm like, I don't want to live like this anymore. Like I, I hate this, you know, there, even though it was, there was this comfort to it, I absolutely hated it. Cause I, I saw what I was missing. I was, you know, not going to family events. I was missing out on friendships. I had like no friendships in college because I would just be alone exercising. And I, I could see everything I was missing, but it had such a hold on me that it wasn't enough to, to make me stop. But I remember in that moment, like, I don't want to live the rest of my life like this. Like I want to get out of this and I don't know how I'm going to do it, but that really for me was the pivotal moment that I didn't want to live like this. I, and I was going to use that same determination that kept me in to get me out. I just didn't know how I was going to do it. So the question comes up, how did you do it? You know, like what happened next? Yeah, I did the tiniest steps I could possibly do. Like for some people, adding time and exercise is a hard thing. For me, taking a minute out of the exercise that day was hard. So for me, I was like, it, let me just exercise one minute less today, one minute less today. So I gradually just started decreasing the exercise time. And and I started reading things. I started reading books. I started listening to anything I could. I just started like filling my mind with other things. It's honestly, a lot of it to me is a blur is about 20 years ago. But I, I think back then I'm like, well, how did I get out of that? Because it, it took me years to get out of it. I would say it probably took me four years from that moment on the floor where I didn't feel like it had control over me. So, but it, there was like the ebbs and flows. There were times where I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm doing better. And then I would go back right back to it. And so there were a lot of times I would just kind of relapse into the, the vomiting. And I, I know it was really the stress levels. Like when I was really stressed, like that's what I would go back to. That was my comfort zone. That was what I knew. That was what was familiar. And then in times when I felt a little bit better, it was easier to pull myself out of it. And I think just over time, there were more good moments that happened than bad moments. Gradually, it kind of just that almost faded away where I could see the light enough that I realized I don't have to live like this. I don't want to live like this. And that it, it starts to feel almost better not living like that. And I think that became gradually more of a pull than the eating disorder that I was engaging in. Did you know and have the language at the time that it was an eating disorder or did you just know that the behaviors you were doing weren't right for you? Yeah, I did not consider myself to have an eating disorder at all. I, I, especially when I was using the exercise, the excess of exercise, I'm like, I'm an athlete. This is just who I am. This is what I do. I train hard. That's it. The only time I realized I had a problem was when I started vomiting. But even then, I didn't even consider myself to have an eating disorder because I'm like, that's, this is different. You know, I would look up, you know, the definitions of different types of eating disorder. And I'm like, well, that's not really me. Yeah. And especially back then there was a lot less resources. It was literally like a dictionary definition. I'm like, well, that's not me. I don't look like I have an eating disorder. So I didn't really even consider that until like probably closer to when I wasn't even doing it. I'm like, oh, I guess that was an eating disorder. You know, I, I didn't even realize at the time. So I never sought professional help. And, but I look back and then I'm like, if you literally could like label everything that was going on in my mind and the behaviors, it was a straight up eating disorder. Interesting that you went searching though. So there must've been something in you that was like, I just need to see if this is it. You know, like there must've been something in you that's like, that. there's a name for what's happening for me right now, or there's something out there that might be able to explain what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing. Yeah, I definitely thought that I knew something was wrong. I mean, I knew I was doing things I shouldn't have done. I felt very shameful and guilty about everything that I was doing, but yet like, 
again, I didn't feel like I fit that labels. I didn't even know how to really classify myself. I'm like, I'm not that, that, but I'm also, I, I know this isn't right either. So I, I didn't know what was going on. I was trying to make sense of it because I was, again, my mind was so, I, I wasn't thinking clearly back then. So I couldn't even really make sense of why I was doing what I was doing. And yeah, and I did a lot of it alone. I was very secretive throughout the process. And it's interesting, Kelly, you're you're the second guest we've had on to talk about an eating disorder and both of you started from excess training to be an athlete. Is there something when you think back through, this is a question that I often get asked around eating disorders, do you think that it stemmed from your childhood or is it, and I'm thinking now particularly because you've both come on as athletes, do you think it was the athlete mentality that really drove it? Like your behavior just grew and grew and grew within that space until it was spiraling out of control. Yeah, I think it's a combination. I can definitely see things that happened in my childhood that did at least ignite something in me that, you know, I, you know, my, my mom died it a lot. I saw that, you know, she was never satisfied with how she looked. And, you know, I saw a lot of those images of, you know, even like magazine media, like you have to look this way. And I, I always had this persona, you know, persona of like how I should look like in my body, I'm, I'm a more athletic, muscular body. I was never going to be a thin, thin person. I, but I thought I could. I thought I could be that person. And so I was always striving for like this ideal, you know, body that really was never going to happen for me. So I did have that, I think started it, but then I think the athletic part of it was that it, it's like you push harder and harder and harder. There's a lot of competition. You're always comparing yourself to others. And I noticed that with myself, I was always comparing myself, like, where am I on this? And especially like, I, I want to be top, you know, like, I don't want to be just right in the middle. Like I wanted to be top. And so I was always looking outside myself, like, where do I stand? And I think that mentality constantly fed into it. Like, where am I? Where am I assessing? I would assess my progress, assess myself religiously. And I think just that constant assessment fed into it too. So I think it was a combination for some external factors in childhood, but also that athletic mentality is like, you're a high, you know, that high achiever, go getter, nothing's good enough. Keep going for more and more and more. Another thing that I often get asked, and it's really interesting, like I said, we had Hannah come on not so long ago and talk about a very similar scenario, different but similar, particularly around the athlete mentality. Many people ask, is there a background of trauma, particularly sexual assault? So a lot of people say that eating disorders often stem from something like that. And I say, no, it doesn't It doesn't always have to be. But in a lot of cases, it, there can be, but it can be a, a variety of trauma. What's your experience in that space? Yeah, I don't personally have a history of any kind of sexual trauma. So that wasn't something that caused me to move in that direction. But many women I've worked with who are perfectionists in my fields have had an experience with sexual trauma. So I have seen some congruencies between that and eating disorder or eating disorder behavior. And, you know, I would say from my experience, a lot of it has to do with control. There's that lack of control where somebody takes advantage of that. And there's also that trauma response too. So you have that trauma, the lack of control, the moving past your own personal boundaries. So there's the disrespect of your own boundaries. And then they feel like there's a compensation of the control with that as well. So it's like when you have that, your control compromised at some part in your life, I feel like a lot, many have to feel like they need to be in control more 
and, and protection. So a lot of eating disorder behavior comes down to protection too. So there's a lack of safety at some point, especially with sexual trauma, that there's no safety at some point. You feel like you're, you've been compromised. You feel like you need to have protection. And oftentimes the control of an eating disorder feels very safe. And so we're looking outside ourselves. Many people look outside themselves for that sense of safety. And so when you have the control of what you put in your mouth, how much you exercise, what you look like, that can feel very safe and also becomes almost like a numbing coping mechanism. So you don't really have to process the emotional part of a trauma that you may have experienced. So that's what I've seen in many people I've worked with. with. But again, I have, I don't have that personal experience as far as experiencing sexual trauma. And thank you for sharing that, Kelly. That was the sense that I had. I am curious though, when you talk about all of these behaviors going around as you were trying to be an athlete, it's actually quite phenomenal that you were able to perform. Like that's the part that also staying there for me. I'm like, how did your body continue to perform when it was being stripped of what it needed? When you said 90% of your day was taken up with that thinking, there's very little space for your studies, for your ability to cognitively think on the field, for you to have downtime. Yeah. I mean, it's, I look back and, you know, at the time I hated my body. I, I hated everything about it, but I look back on it now and I'm like, my gosh, that's amazing what I was capable of doing. It really is that my body could withstand really the abuse that I was putting it through because I had absolutely no respect for my body back then. It was like, you know, you need to do more and more and more with less rest. You know, I was pulling all nighters. I was, you know, just putting it through so much and it did it, it was still able to perform still able to lift i was probably the strongest i was back then i was running miles i mean miles every day just pounding the pavement and you know ironically i did pay the price later on because i ended up experiencing chronic back pain from that and so my mid 20s i did experience the impacts of doing that to my body and the stress of that also contributed to that chronic back pain. But yeah, when the middle of that eating disorder from like 18 to 24, really when it was the, in the thick of it, my body did what I asked it to do. It held up and it, and I, I honestly, I, I, my experience on life is like, if you have anything that's really, really tough, I find that our systems tend to hold up really, really strong until it's able to let go until you say, okay, now you can relax. And then when it, when it, kind of decompresses, it just goes, you know, and that's, I think what I experienced is like, I held it together for so many years, made it do all this up. And then the minute I said, okay, now we don't have to do this. It was like, all right, then we're, we're taking off. And that's when I started experiencing the back pain and everything started to start to pay the price for everything I had put it through in my twenties. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that time in your life was like? Sure. Yeah. So really the most amount of pain experience was really around 25. So I remember going to a practitioner. I, I was having awful back pain at the time I was working as a personal trainer or coach. I was very much a physical job and here I am, I'm like struggling to even move myself and I'm, I'm like hiding it, you know? So I'm trying to help people be physical and I'm like trying to hide that I'm in like a lot of pain. So that, that was really challenging. And I was driving to work and having to stop to stretch just to get to work. And so I was just so sick of living like that. I couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't get a comfortable position. I mean, I'm like, it was crazy. I'm like, I am 25. Like I can't, I don't want to live the rest of my life like this. This is crazy. So I was like desperate. I'm not one to go seek out medical attention. It's just not my nature. I usually don't, but 
at the time I was so desperate. I'm like, I need to go get help. So I went to this practitioner. They took an x-ray in my back and they showed me my disc height between L4 and L5. They're like, well, you have half the disc height that you should for a 25 year old. And I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? This is before I was a physical therapist. I didn't know what that meant. And they're like, well, it doesn't get better. It's only going to get worse and you're going to experience more symptoms. And that was kind of like how they left me. And I'm like, okay, then what do I do? And I just felt so hopeless. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is only going to get worse. And so I viewed my back as my Achilles heel for years. I'm like, uh, I, I can't, my back, I'm just worried about my back. I'm always worried about back. So now my mind is always worried about, can my back handle that? Can it handle that? And and again, it would have been flow. I would be okay for a little while and then it would come right back. And I'm like, this is how it's going to be. And so I genuinely believe that until I actually went through my own healing regimen and now I don't experience back pain. So it, it doesn't have to be like that. And that's the beauty of it. And that all came from a lot of the healing of those limiting beliefs that I had throughout life that I had to really work through that I hadn't that carried from eating disorder to back pain and then later carried on to other things. And the other things that you've spoken about that we mentioned was those perfectionist tendencies. That was what you sort of described was a thread that went throughout your whole life. Yeah. I, and again, it just showed up as different things. So the eating disorder was just really the coping mechanism for the perfectionist tendencies, like never feeling like I was enough always feeling like I had to push myself, never giving myself a break, never feeling like I, I always trying to make everybody happy, never saying no to anybody, just trying to spread myself thin. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's all those things that carried on throughout my life that just led me to this like chronic stress, this feeling of negativity, feeling like I'm constantly critiquing and criticizing myself. And it is that the eating disorder came up as a coping mechanism for that because again, I wasn't enough. I wasn't thin enough. So I have to do something about it. The back pain, again, I wasn't coping with the eating disorder, but I still felt that. I still felt like I, I had gotten a, a degree, came out, thought I would be, you know, all happy. Everything's going to be great. No, it wasn't enough, you know? And so I kept searching for something to make me feel whole and still critiqued myself, still looked at the negative side of everything. I was my own worst enemy. And that stress then festered. And stress is a huge producer of pain. So when we're in a stress response, we have this protective mechanism. I didn't understand the time when I was 25, there's still fear because again, I'm, I'm fearful. So it was contributing. Now that I'm on the other side, I'm like, that's why I was experiencing pain. I was literally living in fear. And so now it was showing up as pain. And then fast forward years after that, it was showing up as panic attacks. I was literally experiencing panic attacks before bed and driving. I mean, it was, it was showing up as different things in my life, but the same exact perfectionist mentality of never feeling enough, being negative on myself, critiquing myself, and just pushing myself harder without ever giving myself a moment of rest. That's one of the best ways I've ever heard anyone describe it. Kelly, like that language that you just used then really opened us up to what it was going on inside your mind at that time and how maybe perhaps it displayed itself in your body physically. When you talk about the panic attacks and you talk about the back pain, do you think at the time if someone had mentioned to you that it could be to do with your perfectionist tendencies, what do you think your reaction might have been? I 
probably wouldn't have even <laughs> so I'd be like, I'm not a perfectionist, you know, back then I didn't even consider myself a perfectionist. I'm like, no, I just work hard. This is what I do. I, I wouldn't have labeled myself as that, you know, I just like, this is, this is who I am because it's like, when you are that, you don't even see that you are that you're just like, this is how it is. And so if someone said like, why are you a perfectionist? I'd be like, I'm very particular. I don't know if I would say I'm a perfectionist, but looking back, I literally had every tendency of a perfectionist, every tendency of a people pleaser, high achiever. I mean, like everything, but yeah, I, I wouldn't be one to accept help. I wasn't ready to accept help or even make a change back then because I didn't think I had problem in many ways. Let's talk a little bit about the panic attacks before we go into how, like what did that road to recovery look like? So with the panic attacks, you mentioned that you were having them often. What was that experience like for you? Yeah. So again, the first time I had one, I didn't even know that was like a panic attack. I didn't know what was going on. So it was literally my first day on at the job. Of, I had just graduated as a physical therapist. My first day at work, I was working in a clinic where I didn't speak the language of most of the patients. So that was really stressful. I had a boss who was just like, figure it out, figure it out. This is literally my first day as a physical therapist. There's a lot on the line. I felt like, because I was just, just moved to a new town. Didn't know anybody. My boyfriend was three hours away. He was going to be moving down in a few months. So I was completely alone. I had to keep this job because we had to have an income down in that new place. So there was just a lot on the line. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is a disaster. Like this is a complete disaster. I had, you know, just gotten my license too. So there was still, I, I can't screw up. I have a license I have to protect, you know? So there was just so much going on. And I was just like flustered. So I literally left that day of work driving home. It was about, 10, nine or 10 o'clock at night. It was dark out. I'm driving down the highway and the lights on my car start going. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And I literally broke down the side of a four way highway. And I just got my tire off the white line. So tractor trailers are buzzing by my whole car swaying. I'm seeing these headlights coming. And I think it was just a perfect storm. And I was just, I, I'm like, I was just panicking. I, I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like, if someone stopped, I, I just, every bad thought of what could happen in that situation was in my head. And I had called my boyfriend. I'm like, I don't know what to do. He's like, you know, trying to help me what to do. Is it in part? And it was trying, and I couldn't even process anything. Nothing was processed. I couldn't breathe. I was, you know, like just hyperventilating, felt like I had the weight of the world on my chest. I could, it just, I couldn't think, I mean, I had never been in a position where I felt so helpless and I couldn't even relax. Like everything was just closing in on me. And I, I sat like that and he stayed on the phone with me and he was trying to figure out how to help me. He couldn't even help me. It was like that for quite a while. And then it kind of, again, deescalated and I'm like, okay, I don't even know what this is, you know? And so again, I didn't even classify it as a panic attack, but then they kept coming, you know, a few weeks later, I had one right before bed when I went through a stressful situation. So I was so in a heightened response that literally anything would, would almost get me to that point because I was so stressed out. So and again, it, I was dealing with like a lot of different things, a lot of changes, and I still had the same mentality. Like you're not enough. Okay. Now you have your doctor and physical therapy. You got a job. You this, you know, I, I did all this work to get to where I was and it's still not enough. Like it, it was like, how can this not be enough? I've dedicated years of my life working hard and grinding and it's still not enough. I'm like, when is it ever going to be enough? And I think that's really what was like the compounding factor. I'm like, I don't even know how to make myself happy at this point. I thought everything I did in my life would make me feel fulfilled. I had all the things that I thought would make me happy and I still wasn't. And I think it just, it just continued to compound. And now it showed up as that. What happened? Like the first question is, when did you make that decision that 
things were going to be different. You know, like when you said with the eating disorder, you had that moment. Did you have that moment again? I did. Yeah. So that was 2016. This moment actually happened in 2019, I think it was, or 20. It actually happened years later. So I kind of lived like that again, like still didn't, not not enough of a wake up call. Like, I don't know how how much I need, you know? I also don't know how people don't notice. Like these are big (laughs) things, like what we're talking about are all consuming and you know, and there's behaviors that people can externally observe that go along with it. Like it blows my mind that the people around you didn't notice, you know, but I guess there's that element of you that was able to explain it away. That's really what it is. I was very good at deflecting like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And you were performing. Yes, that's it. I was a high performer. So like, oh, I'm still working. I'm still doing fine. I I was managing everything. So nothing fell apart. And I think that's what it is. Like I could still keep my life together, even when I was feeling like that. And I think that's why nobody really saw that there was something really big going on. But yeah, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, like he knew, he knew what he knew, like I was not in a good place, but I don't think he really knew how to help me in that place. Like he would comfort me, but I think it just needed to come from within. I'm not one to accept help. And it needed to come from where I was in so much pain that I didn't want to live like that again. Just like the eating disorder, I had to get to that pain spot where I needed to make the change. Because even if someone said, do this, I probably would not have done anything differently. So I'm just a very like headstrong person. So it really just came to a head. I ended up moving. We were building a house and... Oh, yeah, we're living with my parents at the time. And again, it was just another chaotic situation. You know, we're building a house. We were the general contractors. What could go wrong went wrong. We were spending thousands of dollars. We were draining our accounts to build this house. It was just the most stressful situation. Literally, right when we moved into my parents' house, I found out I was pregnant. And I'm like, now we have three dogs. I'm pregnant, living with my parents, building a house, general contractors. Both of us were working full-time jobs an hour away. I mean, again, just like chaos in my life. And so... Again, just held it all together, built the house, got it done, moved in, but I was paying the price. I mean, again, still experiencing panic attacks frequently, more frequently in this time. And there was literally a moment, I remember it again, a clear moment. I was sitting on the floor with my son and I ended up watching this documentary called Heal. And I, it's just like, it was like a light bulb. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. Like it talks about the mind and the body and how our bodies are going to experience everything that's going on in our mind. So if we're living in a negative place, living in stress, our bodies are going to exhibit that. And it's like, I knew this, but it's almost the way they explained it. I'm like, that is it. This is it. I never healed from all those things. Like, even though I thought I did because I wasn't doing the insulator anymore, my back was okay, but it was still experiencing pain. But now I'm experiencing panic attacks. It was almost like I realized like I had never done the emotional healing that I needed to do. I had never given myself a moment to even sit and take a pause to even like reflect on what I was thinking. And that really was the wake up call that I'm like, I have to change the way I'm doing things. So I dove in, I just, just started investing in myself. I'm like, I'm going to take this time without feeling guilty about it. I'm going to listen to every podcast I can read every book I can. I'm going to take moments of pause, not feel like that unless I'm lifting or running, that it's not a good enough workout. Like I started slowing down my movement patterns, changing everything, learning how to do breath work, diving into the vagus nerve, understanding that, understanding the visual system and how that works, understanding our, my subconscious mind. Like I just dove into everything and applied everything. And that really led me to a place where 
I no longer have back pain. I don't experience the panic attacks. I am in such a better place. Now I'm in a place where I can help people who are in those places. And that, that's the most amazing gift. Like I used to regret those things for years because I'm like, wow, I wasted my entire 20s hating myself. I wasted much of my 30s hating myself. I had such regret of the time I had wasted because everyone's like, oh, those are the best years of your life. Now I am so grateful for that because all those moments literally were the building blocks for allowing me to help people who are in those places. And I couldn't have been able to do that unless I went through that. How many years, like you threw all these things in there, like breath work and you did the vagus nerve and you did the movement and you slowed it down. And like, there was a whole bunch of things in there that would have taken a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, even learning breath work, it doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it took years. Yeah. I'm not, not trying to, it did. It took years and it was a stepwise process. It's not like, okay, I'm going to throw my 20 new things on myself right now and be okay. It was okay. Let me just open the door a little bit. Okay. Now I feel okay with that. Let me open the door a little bit more. So it was a stepwise process of just adding little things into my life and also subtracting things from my life. So there were things I had to remove from my life. Like I was the person who in the first thing in the morning, I'd be like on my phone and I'd be reading the news. Like I'd be watching the news. I was engrossed in the news. Like there's just negative things around my life. I would have negative conversations about my friends, but everything's going wrong in my life. Like there were these little changes that I started making in my life that were moving me in the, in a direction that was different. So I just started doing little things differently, but it's an ongoing process. Like I'm still working on things to this day. It's not like I'm, everything's great today. You know, there are still things like, but I can tell you I'm a heck of a lot better than I was three years ago. And I'm going to be a heck of a lot better in three years from now. But I now realize how important it is for me to take care of myself, how important it is. And it's not selfish. There's no reason to feel guilty about it. And that I have to immerse myself in that I have to be consistent. I don't have to be perfect with things. There's so many little changes I made in just my mindset and how I approach life that have made all the difference. And it it just is continuing to open that door bigger and bigger for me to evolve to the person that I think I really was destined to be. And when you think back through the chapter of like learning and exploring and opening that door just a little bit, you know, and then just a little bit more for you personally, what would be one or two of the most valuable things that you took away? Like whether that be a strategy or a mindset piece or a course that you did, what were the couple of things that you're like, they were really foundational blocks for me? Yeah. So one of the biggest things I did, I actually hired a coach back in 2021 and that really was a big transitional thing for me. So it was the first time I invested a lot of money into myself, you know, and into my own personal growth. And because I invested that money into myself, it made me realize that like, like it, it made me a priority because I'm like, I can't invest this money and then not do anything with it. And so it had a way of changing my mindset on it because I'm like, if I'm spending all this money, I have to do this. And so a lot of times I would feel like, you know, previously I would feel like, oh, I need to do this, but you know, I got to take care of this first and then I'll take care of myself. When I was investing that money in the coaching program, it made me realize like, no, I have to put myself first so that I can be good for everyone else. So it totally transitioned my mindset on that. So that was one big thing. Another big thing was just bookending my day with, with habits that serve me. So like the morning I wake up and I just do some visualization, some mindset work, just, just calming breaths. And at the end of the day, I read. And so those are two things, two little things. I, you know, make sure I read 10 pages of a day. 
it's not much, but you know, that's a minimum. So I, these little things that I do have made a big difference. So that's one thing I would say for anyone listening, like you don't have to completely turn over your whole life. It has to be these tiny things make big changes in your life. And that's really what I've noticed. And I always thought I had to completely overhaul my life to ever feel better about my life. But that really wasn't the case. It was just the tiniest things that I did that allowed me to open the door again more and more each time. And now you said you work with people in a similar situation, you know. I'm curious though how you tap into letting them know that there's another side or another world or it doesn't have to be this way because you've mentioned a few times throughout your episode that you weren't ready to hear it. You weren't ready to receive it. You weren't, even if someone had tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, have you considered this or this is going on or this is what I'm seeing, you would have been most likely, I'm out of here. Yeah. I'm fine. I don't need to hear that. So how do you then reach people that are in that situation that are you back then? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I would say the the biggest thing that I do is just give them a little bit of evidence. So the tiniest thing. So even if you do breath work for 30 seconds, just see how you feel. 30 seconds, that's all you got to do, you know, and then it gives the brain evidence that it can start rewiring and take that and move forward. So I think if somebody had said that last, you know, when I was going through all that, like, hey, just try this for a minute, I, I probably would have tried something for a minute, you know, and see how I feel. So that's what I like to do is make it make it actionable. Like what's the smallest action you can take today that can move you forward and see how you feel. Be curious. That's that's all you have to do. You don't. You're not. No one's forcing you to do it. No one's taking three hours out of your day when you're already overwhelmed. Like just try something on your drive. Try this breath work on your drive. And then another thing that I I think has what I've found has really kind of penetrated people into understanding a little bit more is like give the science behind it. So I'm a big why person. Like I'm not just going to be like here do this and I'm and make it arbitrary. Like I need to know why. So I want you to know why too. So I add a lot of science into anything I talk about that this is how the brain functions. This is how the body functions. This is the physiology of it. There's a why behind everything. Nothing is just woo woo, you know, let's just throw things at you. There's an actual reason for why the brain will change its chemistry, why it will rewire when you add these things into your life. And so that I have found penetrates people a little bit more when they can see those things and have evidence. And I believe me 10, 15 years ago, that would have made a little bit of difference in my life too. And when you say that you shine a light on some of that evidence, some of that science that sits behind it, what are one or two things that you can think of now that might help our listeners that, you know, because we've kind of talked around that, but it might be helpful when someone's hearing being like, wow, this sounds like me, but is it really, you know? So maybe if we just talk a little bit about that just for a moment, because I can't believe we're coming to an end and I own a gym as well and everyone's going to come flying through the door soon. So we have to really be on point today. Sure. Yeah. So one big thing was gratitude. So I wanted to like do gratitude journaling for years. And I was like, oh, I don't, I was in such a headspace. I could even see things I could be grateful for in my life. Like that's how bad it was. I, get, I had so much to be grateful for and I couldn't even see it. So I was always hesitant to do gratitude journaling. And I always had, thought I had to look at the big things like, you know, oh, I have this in my life. And I would just repeat the same things I was grateful for. And I'm like, what is this doing? But the science behind it and what I understood and have changed is that 
there's a system in your brain is called the reticular activating system. So it is literally the filter of your brain. So each day we're bombarded with information and our brain filters out what's important to us and what's not important to us. And it's based on what are the direction of our thoughts are. So if we set an intention for the morning and we say, I'm going to see something that gives me joy. I'm going to make today a good day. I'm going to be happy today, whatever it is, you know, whatever empowering emotion that you want to experience, your brain will actually start to see more of that in your day. And it will start to see more things you can be grateful for. So if you start your day off recognizing what you have in life to be grateful for, even if it's the green grass in your yard, the breeze on your face, the breakfast sandwich you had, it can be the smallest thing. It will start to see more of that. It's the same system that activates. Like if you go buy a yellow Prius, all of a sudden you're like, my gosh, I didn't even realize there are this many yellow Priuses in the world. It's the same thing. And that's literally your brain starts seeing more of what you're looking for. So it can work to your advantage or your disadvantage. Like for years, it worked to my disadvantage. I was always so negatively driven that of course I'm going to see the whole world is against me and everything's negative. But the minute you make that transition to be like, I'm going to start recognizing the little things I have to be grateful for, you start seeing more of it. And then it just gets easier. You can start seeing more things in your life to be grateful for. And it's like, it's like a a big boulder. It's really hard to get going initially, but once you get it rolling, it just rolls. And that's really what it is. And what about in the movement space? Because you said you're a physical therapist. Is there some science there around when you were talking about like the brain and movement and, you know, around the slowing down, around the not pushing, 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 because I see that so often in people around me, particularly, you know, we just spoke about the gym. We spent a lot of time talking to people about the yin and the yang, the night and the day, the fast pace, the getting in, the doing the training, but then the relaxing and giving the body a chance to recover. The mind, the brain, and the body are completely interrelated. So whatever you think in your brain and your and you in your mind, you are going to feel in your body. So if you're really stressed, your body will feel that. You'll start to tense up. Your fascia, which is your connective tissue, will also change its properties. So it becomes more taut and things tense up almost as if you were going to a protective mode. So like if you saw a lion, that becomes a stressful event, your body would respond as if it had to fight that line or run from it. And those are the things that start to tense up. So it's the same thing. If we move our body in a way that is not typical for a survival situation, now our mind senses, okay, I guess there is no immediate threat. We can calm down a little bit. And that's the beauty of it. So we can use our body to train our mind. We can also use our mind to train our body. And so we have to get both on track in order to have this harmony within our system. So one simple thing that people can do is just change their posture. So if you're really stressed, a typical posture you're going to experience is like a tensing of your shoulders in an upward position, forward shoulders, the hips get really tense as if you were going to defend yourself. If you change your posture into like an upright position, stand up almost like a Superman pose, that will actually change the way your mind is interpreting the situation. So absolutely, the mind and body are so important. You have to have both on in order for changes to actually occur. And I love that the two examples you gave were both very simple and achievable. You know, I, this is something that at times people are looking for a simple answer, yet here we're handing two. These small steps 
they work. They truly work. And in this day and age, we're all looking for that quick fix. These aren't quick fixes, but they are simple, small steps. So it sometimes can feel like when you first start doing either of these things, whether it be journaling, whether it be a mindfulness practice, whether it be the posture and relaxing through the shoulders, the jaw, the neck, it can be like, oh, this isn't doing anything, but give yourself time. You know, and how are you going to ma- measure that? So if we're just like, oh, we're just going to see if we feel better next week, it might not be enough for you to kind of see that measure. So you put a number next to it or ask the people around you, have you noticed anything different about me? I've been doing this breathing exercise every day for the last four weeks. Have you noticed any changes? Because someone else might be noticing something that perhaps you don't see within yourself. Yeah, it's a really great recommendation. A lot of times we can get so in our head that we don't see these things. And we also lose perspective. If you're looking for immediate thing, sometimes you will see some things immediate because the nervous system is very responsive. But give yourself some grace. Life is going to ebb and flow. Things are going to ebb and flow. Again, consistency is really the biggest thing. And then start start journaling, recognize that because you may write something down today that four weeks from now, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't feel like that anymore. Okay. I guess I do feel a little different. And that evidence, the brain loves evidence. So give yourself as much evidence as you possibly can and seek it. And then it will be the catalyst because we can't rely just on willpower for change. We have to allow the brain to actually enjoy this and move in the direction that it feels authentic. And the example I think of there is I remember working with someone when they first came into my gym and they said, my goal is to walk around the block. If you can get me into a place where I can actually physically walk around the block, that's a 10 out of 10 for me. That would be amazing. That individual then ended up running 10Ks and they can't remember that conversation we had, but I have it on paper in her handwriting. And she's like, no way. And I'm like, yeah, way. Like that is where we started. But we get so used to our normal, like you did in the other way. You know, when you started exercising all the time, it became your everyday, your normal. We had new parameters in which we think, we view the world from, we measure the world with. So just that writing things down, like you said, can be massive for us and for our brains to be like, huh, that's interesting. Or now I can see how far I've come. I'm thinking, Kelly, what about someone that's sitting there right now and they're like, this doesn't resonate so much with me, but my God, it's my best friend or it's my partner or it's my sister or it's my brother. Like, what about someone that's sitting in that space? What advice would you have for them to kind of be able to either tap that person on the shoulder or hold space for that person? Just going off of kind of my experience and many people who I've worked with who are the perfectionists and don't necessarily want to get help thrown in their face. Questions are the best way. So you have questions like, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever looked into that? And just leave it, you know? So sometimes those questions can be so suggestive and it's really just getting things into our brain like, hmm, I haven't thought about that. And then you can take those those questions that people ask you and go pursue on your own. But we we as humans want to feel like we're we're the ones that almost came up with it. So when you ask people questions, you're the one coming up with the solution. They're just asking the question. So even if you have a friend that you would think would benefit from something, ask them a question like, hey, have you looked into that? And just leave that. Then you know what? It triggers in the brain. Maybe I need to look in that. Okay, I'll look into that. And now, now it becomes again their own solution rather than you pushing the solution on them. And it can be done in private. Exactly. It can be done at their pace. 
the way that they want to. And hopefully with our access these days to all the information, hopefully it won't be the experience that you had where they go and have a look and it's the wrong information. So with a bit of luck when they go searching now, they might be able to find something that resonates with them. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that's the biggest thing. There's so much information. There's no lack of information. So you definitely want a trusted source. So if you have someone who knows someone, it's always much better so that you know, okay, at least this is legitimate. Because again, our brains will absorb whatever we throw at it. If we give it the wrong information, it can mislead you. So you do want to trust the source that you're getting your information from. And Kelly, what haven't I asked you that you'd like the audience to know? I'll leave it with a quote because this quote really transformed my life and made me realize that I have to change and evolve myself. And it was that no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. So in order for us to solve problems that we have in our life, we actually have to evolve ourselves. We have to grow ourselves. And I truly believe that is our whole purpose here on earth is that we have to always evolve and grow and just recognize that even the problems we have in our life, there's no good and bad. They're all here to serve us and move us in a direction of growth. So if you do have a problem in your life, it may be really hard when you're going through it right now. It's really hard to see things when you're going through any kind of struggle, but give yourself some grace. And then when you're able to see things a little bit more clearly as you move out of it, you can recognize that the world is really working for you. The universe is working for you. All these things are there to make you stronger, to help you grow. And as long as you embrace that and you recognize that you're developing a new level of consciousness so that the problems that you have today are going to be very easy to solve later on. Love that, Kel. That's amazing. Thank you. Now, where do people find you? Like, let's go through your podcast and where they can look you up online because your honesty around your story was just so beautiful, but also your knowledge. You know, as we started to hear towards the end of the episode, there's a wealth of wisdom there personally and professionally. And it's so lovely to hear someone come with that evidence and science that sits behind it as well. These aren't throwaway comments. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. So the best place to find me is uh, through my podcast, which is Rewiring Health. And really there I dive into nervous system regulation and subconscious mind reprogramming and all different health topics so that you can continue to be successful without compromising your health. And social media, you can find me under Dr. Kelly Kessler, all one word. Fantastic. And Kelly, I love to finish every episode with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. Yeah. So um, I I always like to mess with my husband. So it's probably the, the thing that makes me laugh most, but I'll always just do like funny memes of him. And then I'll do like a compilation of it on a, like a video or like, I'll make this whole compilation of things he didn't even know I was doing. So like a picture of him sleeping or like I'll record him when he's coming out of the store and make up like a goofy voice. And then I'll show him later on. It's just, it's just really funny. He probably, I poor husband, he puts up with so much, but now my son is doing it and it's really really funny. So my son will be like, hi, I'm Jeff. And it's like, yeah, he just puts up a lot, but it makes us laugh. It's all in good humor, but yeah, I, it's, it's kind of funny. And I was thinking we've, we've sort of mentioned your husband a couple of times throughout the episode, just thinking then, as you said him again, maybe, is there something that you want to say to him? Because he's been on this journey with you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very grateful for my husband. He literally has been my by my side for 10 years now. So he's seen the whole evolution of 
you know, not, not necessarily eating disorder, but a lot of what I've been through. And he's just always been very supportive. And even through this journey of entrepreneurship, he has been so supportive. So very grateful for him. And uh, it's, it's just cool because I really believe everything works out for a reason. And we ended up finding out that we had crossed paths six years before we had even met. So it's kind of cool. It's like things are meant to be. Oh, thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you for your time today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. This has just been a pleasure to be on, on your podcast. And I'm very grateful. What a journey and what a woman. I really love this conversation. I hope you took as much away as I did. Don't forget my friends to press stop now, jump in the show notes and grab the resilience course, Surviving to Thriving. There is no reason you can't finish the end of 2023 with a bang. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share it with your friends and family. Every time you pass on an episode, we can help more people navigate their own personal challenges. That's us for today. And I will see all of you legends next Monday morning for our episode with Jen that takes us on the journey of her life experiences with drugs, homelessness, prison, and so much more. I will see you all then. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.